Welcome to the Young Turks. We got an amazing interview for you guys today. It's Ray Dalio. Uh, he happens to be one of the wealthiest men alive, which is kind of badass. Uh, he's also uh, runs Bridgewater Associates, which is the largest uh, hedge fund in the world and the most successful uh, by many measures. Uh, but that's not why I'm excited. Ray, I'm excited to have you in because of the arc of your career and, and your life. Because if you started out incredibly wealthy and then you got a little wealthier, that's not that interesting a story, right? So was your dad a billionaire, grandpa no, a billionaire? He was a, he was a jazz musician. <laughs> your dad was a jazz musician in Long Island. Yeah. Okay, so a bunch of stuff about this is very, very interesting. So first of all, as I was reading through your book and his book is Principles, this is my version where I beat it up a little bit. Uh, this is the fancier version coming out now, okay? Uh, so you you talk about how to do this, right? But the first thing I got from it was a jazz musician on Long Island had a house. It felt like a different time. I don't think the jazz musicians these days can afford a house in Long Island. So it, talk to me about how you grew up in that context. You know, what was your guy's relative wealth? How was your childhood? Yeah, I just want- Well, we didn't have- the relative wealth was, I guess, economically. My dad was a jazz musician, and I remember that he bought the house for nineteen thousand dollars. Okay, that's not today's nineteen thousand dollars, <laughs> but anyway, it wouldn't I don't know what it would be today, but anyway, it was a modest, and it was a fixer-upper, and you know, we fixed up the house, and um, and then I had a stay-at-home mom, and um, that was it, and then I got. Um, it was a golf course nearby, and I caddied at the golf course, and then I got hooked on the markets as a game. And I think one of the things that I was really lucky about is to go from not having anything to having a lot so that I could see the differences in what it's like. And this has also been good for my kids because we, they also did that. Mm -hmm. And so I know what every step is like, and I know how to compare the two. And so what is the differences? So a lot of people have your earlier experience. Not a lot of people have your later experience. What's the difference between being poor, middle class, and and incredibly wealthy? Um, first of all, <clears throat> past a certain point, the marginal differences are very limited. In other words, there's a basic thing like I want to take care of my kids, but you know you start to think about it. Do I have a bed to sleep in? Do I have good food? Do I have good friends? What are those relationships? If you can educate your kids, take care of the health care, and do that, and have a family life, then you're, it's great. I was raised rich in those things, okay? Mm -hmm. That was the most important things. The people who have a problem are the people who don't have those things. But in other words, and then we see what the marginal differences are. Okay, what? You're gonna change your car? You're going to live in a bigger house? I mean, so they're become, oh yeah, that, that's nice. You get some element of freedom, in other words, to not worry about the education yep, yep. of your kids. And then you get past that. Um, I wasn't uh, working in the early days, I was working for money. I caddied, I had a paper route, I did those types of things, and, and I liked that, that doing that. But I fell in love with a game that happened to be a game that produced a you know, significant amount of money. What, what happens with that sequence, okay, so here's what happens. Um, 
it, it's a, it's a two-edged sword. It, it's great because you have a lot of opportunities. You know, you, you can go anywhere and whatever. And one of the things that's been great is also I can meet all different kinds of people, and that's mm -hmm. been fantastic. And I have that friend's feeling of security and whatever. But at the same time, you have to be really careful about this because when you have too much money and you have kids who have too much money, that can be a that could be a bad thing. So you have to be, you know, the most important thing that I could give my kids is self-sufficiency, you know? Yeah. And then, but I'm lucky my kids um, experience it. So at, at each step, you experiencing something different. I think what you experience is um, that the marginal benefits uh, past a certain point are no big deal. And I, I wouldn't have known that when I'm looking at somebody who's got a lot of money and what, what experiences is like. It's not, you know, I thought, okay, wow, that's really terrific. But you know, I guess it depends what that those big houses or, or the cars mean to you. You know, mm -hmm. you can get what you want. But you know, on the margin, it's not the same as like a good relationship. And this is not just me saying this. Psychologists have examined what causes happiness. A number of studies have been in the world, what causes happiness. And what they show is that past a certain basic level of income, there's no correlation with the amount of money that you have and the amount of happiness I have. The number one item that there's a correlation with is whether you have a sense of community. Mm, yeah. So that, so. When sometimes when rich folks say, "Hey, money's not important," it drives middle class people crazy, for good reason. And I've been there. If you're having trouble paying the rent, money's important, right? Like, yes. But I think what Ray is saying, and and then we covered on the show the studies that you're talking about, is really important. It's that once you get past a certain threshold, and you can pay the rent, and you know that's right, exactly. And you're not worried about your kids and putting food on the table, etc. Then then. The marginal utility between 15 billion and 17 billion. No, I'm not talking billions. Yeah, let alone no, 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 15 I'm billion, talking, 17 I'm billion. I'm talking enough money that you can be secure, that you can pay the rent, that you can educate your kids well, that you can eat well, that you, you know, those basic things. Right. Once, for me, I'm just talking about me and also people around it, uh, me. Once you get that, that you're secure for it, if you lose your job, what does that mean for you, mm -hmm. okay? That you have enough money that if you lose your job, you're gonna be okay. And those numbers, believe me, are nowhere near no, no, billions and yeah. you know, or hundreds of millions or whatever it is. That's the thing. I think one of the great things also sometimes about kids, um, if, if a kid could go, at, maybe it's after high school or after college, go out there for a year and just um, work on their own. And learn like what the income you know you can earn income you could travel you could realize that you can go all over the world and you can do things and you're self sufficient. I mean, all I'm saying is that okay, list the things that you're going to get past that point, whatever that point is. Yeah. And the most important thing is that family background. In other words, the, what I'm talking about, the richness, because that gives you the opportunity, gives you the stability, it gives you a healthy environment. So the people that I worry the most about are people who don't have those things. My struggling, your struggling, helped you. Mm -hmm. Now, if you asked, if I asked you, I mean, I know your story, and if I asked you, was that a gift or was that a problem? Okay, you would answer that that was a gift. Damn right, yes. Uh, and I know that it didn't feel that way at the time. Right? No, struggles don't feel that way. <laughs> That's right. But, it, but it, they strengthen you. That's right. And so, but one more thing about this, then I want to get back to the arc of your <clears> life. 
part of the reason I brought it up is that you know you're in the financial industry, so you you joined the giving pledge of Gates and and Buffett, so you're going to give away half your money because, and you're being honest about it, which is this. That's a good, it makes you feel good and it's not that big a deal because you have plenty, right? right. So you lose almost no marginal uh, you know, uh, happiness from it. So why don't others do that? So what is it about, especially the financial industry that it seems like to the outside world, driven by greed and it's never enough? Like if the difference is almost nothing in, in, in the real world of that more money, why do they do it? I, I, I think it's, uh, it's not just people in the financial world, I think it's anybody. So mm -hmm. it could be in your audience and if you get a lot of money and, mm -hmm. and you say, what are you gonna do about it? Um, members who don't have a lot of money, when they come that time, then well, that'll test what, how they're gonna do with it. And there's no right or wrong answer. I don't wanna make the judgments on the particular people. But I think that the, there's, I think it's an evolution in what I might call <clears throat> There are some people who are compulsive, in other words, getting more money. And it's mm -hmm. become um, almost a, a problem and you know, I need to get more money. There are some people, um, I guess, who uh, do it for status. You know, why do they do it? I don't know, they do it for status maybe. Or maybe it's because they genuinely like that. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. when you think about how big of a house, how big of the, I mean, you know, it's a discomfort for us. Because maybe that was my background. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know how you feel about as you mm -hmm. accumulate your your money. How you feel about it? So people, I guess, do it for different reasons. I, I, do you feel connected to other people? You know, like because I didn't come from anything. Um, and my notion, I look at the marginal difference of what I'm going to spend my dollar on, and what it means to a person. I mean, literally, you know, like five hundred dollars. It's changing a life. I'm, I'm, I particularly like uh, microfinance. I'm, I'm a big, big supporter of Grameen America, which is a microfinance. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what that does is <clears throat> um, the, the average donut, uh, loan is something like $1,000, okay? That $1,000 per person might get a piece of uh, a, a, a rug cleaning machine, mm -hmm. and they're in the rug cleaning business. And so on. And not only does they do they get that money that gets that opportunity, they pay it back, and it goes round and round to be lent to somebody else and somebody else. Now, when I'm comparing on the margin, what that's going to mean for me in terms of my thing, okay, whatever it is, it's you know it's such a big gap that I just can't feel feel good about it. So I, I, you know, it's one of those things. But each person has to make their own decisions. I don't want to criticize what any yeah. of the other person's doing. Yeah, uh, the, uh, leave it to me to criticize. Um, <laughs> so, guys, look, I just want you guys to take away one thing. I, I've talked to a lot of folks that have sat in that seat. Fame doesn't do it. Fortune doesn't do it. Uh, and status, all that stuff doesn't necessarily make you happy. Of course, as we talked about, there's a threshold. And we all wanna to get to that, past that threshold where we feel a little comfortable. In what I've seen over and over is fulfillment does it. That if you've got a hole in your heart, that's what fills it. Even if you don't have a hole in your heart, I've been, I'm the luckiest man alive, I didn't. But it just makes you feel great. Because there's something about humanity where you need to connect to one another. That's how we're built. And the more you do that, the happier you are. Right, the relationships. We're pre-programmed this way. The relationships will make you happier and healthier. The correlations between having a community and relationships and longevity, health, all of these are the thing. Now, when, it, when, when, you, when you get more money, the circle can widen, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So first, you want to take care of 
You know, basically first you have to take care of yourself. Then you take care of your family. Then you have your friends who have issues and you wanna take care of those friends, that's the instinct. And then as you get more money, then you have that and you have the community. So, I mean, yeah. I think it's important for, I think you're raising a very important question because so many people who haven't experienced that don't actually know what it's like. And they can have a lust for it beyond its real utility. Utility. Yeah, and I totally agree with you on the microfinancing too, by the way, because that gives, I mean, we talk about margins here, marginal utility. That's a high marginal utility for that person who needs that $500, $1,000 to start a business. That's more money for them than it is to give a million dollars or 10 or 100 million to someone else. So, all right, now let's go back to the to the, to your life. So, I think a lot of people are wondering, as I was wondering, okay, so how do you go from Long Island, you you know, you, you don't really have any money to speak of, you got a paper route, to building this gigantic business, largest hedge fund in the world? How in the world did that happen? Well, <clears throat> I caddied, uh-huh. and I was earned six dollars a bag. I carried two bags, and when I was twelve. Um, because everybody was talking about the stock market at the time. I um, and the people I was with catting for talked about the stock market. I took my catting money and I put it in the stock market. I mean, you know, like if I get $50, I would put it in the stock market and so on. And I bought a company by uh, the name of Northeast Airlines, which was my whole criteria was, it was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. Mm-hmm. And I thought I could buy more shares, so that's the company I that's bought. That's not really the right way to invest. Is that's it? the that's a dumb way to invest. <laughs> and I, but I got lucky uh-huh. because it was about to go bankrupt, but some company acquired it and it tripled, and I was hooked on the game. And then I played, <clears throat> I played the game, and um, and I realized this is really a tough game. Um, because in order to make money in the markets, you have to bet against the consensus and be right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's not easy. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Okay. Okay. So hold hold for one second, because I I want people to understand and appreciate that comment. And I saw it in your TED talk, and it really sunk in for me. It's not that you just that you have to be right, but you have to be against the consensus. Because as you said in the TED talk, the consensus is built into the stock price. Or if you're an entrepreneur like myself, like it made, it gave me a huge sense of relief. Like everybody's been telling me I'm crazy for 15 years, right? But if they're not telling you you're crazy and they're telling you, oh, you're think the same thing everybody else does, it's already built in. There's already a company doing it, etc. Right. So now we 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 understand because I, I, I both as an investor and then I'm an entrepreneur started and build my company. Both of them require independent thinking. Against the consensus, and is going to produce a significant number of mistakes. Mm. Okay, yeah. So, including failures, and success is determined by how you deal with those mistakes, right? And that, and to embrace the mistakes. They don't teach you this in school, okay? But they should. They, no, it's the opposite in school. It's uh, if you get a good grade. And therefore, you didn't make mistakes, and you're a smart kid. Good. Mistakes are bad. There's something wrong with you if you make mistakes. Well, the world doesn't work that way. I mean, the reality of it is, so that you're going to be encountering those mistakes. Mistakes are the best ways to learn, because successes mean you did it right, and you're not going to change. What it, mistakes are the things that beat it into you that you better damn well change. And mm-hmm. if you if you do that. 
and you really know how to do that, it's important. So my experience was that I started to go from a state of um, reactions to mistakes differently. Um, I would calm myself down. Uh, I have a saying, pain plus reflection equals progress. So you have the painful mm-hmm. mistake, mm-hmm. and then you better allocate time to reflect and, and then learn a lesson. So my instinct began to change that whenever I would make a painful mistake, I would view it as a puzzle. That if I could solve the puzzle, it would give me a gem. And the puzzle was, what would I do differently in the future so I wouldn't have that painful mistake? And the gem is the principle that I would then write down to not make that that type of mistake again. So the book is just a collection of my principles over the last 25 years. And when I encountered something of some sort that was painful, I wrote them down. And then in writing them down, it was great. I, I would tell all your viewers, you know, like, do that. When you have pain, reflect. And then almost think, what is the lesson? Write it out so when the next one of those comes along, you will think how to do it better. And then when you take that and you write it down and you're working with people or having a relationship with people, you could say, that's the principle. Is that the right way to handle it? Do we agree on our principles? Can we be together? And that is a magical process. You know, it's as you're describing it, it almost reminded me of the magic of compounding interest. You have compounding lessons from your mistakes that just gives you more and more wealth of knowledge, which allows you to do what you did. Yes, right? It's the lessons of life. Write them down, accumulate them. So whenever that thing comes along, that next thing that you've experienced so many times, because everything happens over and over again, that you say, ah, it's one of those, okay? Mm-hmm. Like like mm-hmm. looking at a species, what kind of species is it? Okay, and what are my principles for dealing with that kind of species so that I approach it well, right? Mm-hmm. Just remember those, then you internalize those. That has been my journey. There's nothing special about me in terms of this process, okay? The every, it, 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 these are like recipes. Um, it's those principles, and if, if one just follows those principles, they'll lead to success. And the most important principles are how to have your goals and then um, develop principles. I, I, I basically say a formula for a successful life is dreams, have great dreams, then embrace your realities and know how to deal with reality and have determination to do it over and over again. Because if you have determination and you embrace reality and you keep going after your dreams, you'll have enough experiences that you will learn to have a successful life. Yeah, again, common themes of successful folks that I've talked to is is those, everybody, guys, everybody gets a bad break. Everybody gets a lot of bad breaks. The question isn't whether you're gonna get a bad break. The question is, are you gonna learn anything from that bad break? Are you gonna recover from that bad break? So learning from your mistakes is huge. The other is persistence. You just have to keep going. And again, your life's a testament to that. So the book's principles, and he you got over 200 principles. And I wanna get into some of those in a second. One more thing about the, the rise. So did you always not have this, like, being able to put aside your ego is enormously important because if you get wedded to I'm great and hence I must be right, well, that's gonna lead to disaster, right? right? Look at 
what we have in the White House today. I mean, I don't want to get political in this context, but we, we see it in front of us. But you could, there's a thousand examples. But were you always that way? So, or no, did you got, have an ego in the beginning? No, I got it beaten into me. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a case in 1982. I describe it in the book or in the TED Talk, if mm -hmm. if you see it, um, in which um, I did this analysis and I anticipated that Mexico and other countries would default on their debt, and then. Um, and they defaulted and I was asked to testify to Congress and I was on Wall Street week and all of this and this was 82 and I thought there was gonna be an economic collapse and that turned out to be the exact bottom in the stock market. And I lost money, I lost clients, I had the business that I was seven years into, I had to let everybody go. These mm -hmm. are people who were, I had close relationships, I had to let them know. I was so broke that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help to pay my family bills. And it was the most painful experience that I had. But it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life because it changed my perspective about decision making. I went from thinking I know to asking myself, how do I know I know? And, and that made me do things differently. It made me try to find the smartest people I know who disagreed with me so that I could understand their um, reasoning. And it made me do a number of other things, balance my bets and so on in a different way. And from that point, things changed. And so it goes back to the ego. There are two barriers that are described in the book that everybody has. There's an ego barrier and a blind spot barrier. The ego barrier is causes what I think is the greatest tragedy of mankind, which is individuals so needlessly having opinions in their heads that are wrong and making decisions on them because they don't put them out there to stress test them. So my fear of being wrong wanted me to put out my opinions to stress test them, and that's a big thing. And then also there's the realization, when I say there's ego barrier, you gotta get past the ego barrier, man. We know we're, that, that's yep. gonna kill you. Or, and then there's the blind spot barrier. The blind spot barrier means that even if you don't have an ego, no one person sees the same way. There are some people who see the big picture, some people see details. Some people are creative, others are, they're creative but not reliable. Somebody's reliable but not creative. And when you start to realize that the, the, the seeing things through others' eyes, and you could see things in a multi-dimensional way, and that was so enlightening. So I wouldn't have had that if I didn't have that painful mistake. That led me to build Bridgewater as an idea meritocracy. Another very important, who are the most, most smartest independent thinkers that I can get around me? If they're independent, they're not, we're not gonna agree. And how do we work ourselves through that to get at the best answers? And so that all came from these mistakes. So. Uh, I wanna get more into the principles in a second too, but one last thing about the rebuild. Okay, so again, an audience knows this to your second point. What I always say on the show is the hardest thing in the world is to escape your own perspective. And you think that everybody thinks like you do. No, that's not true, everybody thinks differently. And if you wanna succeed, whether it's this, it's what you're doing or anything that you guys are doing out there, 
Give yourself a range of opinions. Don't get wedded to your own. And 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 surround, don't surround yourself with yes men. They're not going to help you. A yes doesn't help, right? Right. A different idea helps. And so so I think these are enormously important lessons to learn from Ray's life. And you might not trust me, depending on your political beliefs or anything like that. You say, well, what do you know? Well, Ray's got pretty good evidence that he figures something out, right? Well, it's <laughs> I, one of the things that I've been really lucky to do is to know the most successful people in the world. Okay, I won't, right, name, right. I won't name drop, but I know the most successful people in the world. Right. And I know that that's a universal truth. That what happens is the, the notion of failure, the fear of failure, the knowing how to get the other point of view, that nobody can be full range. What you're saying is absolutely true. It doesn't look like that to, it was like the wealth thing. You know, you think what is it like to be wealthy? Well, it's not like that. And when you think about like, what does it take to be successful? Well, it's not like that. Everybody thinks that because because that guy is very successful, he walks on water, he's a really smart guy, okay? They're smart, you're a smart guy, but you know and I know and they know that you're when you are open-minded and worried about being wrong and you triangulate with the smartest people you can so that you take it in and you learn, it enhances your learning and it raises your probability of making good decisions. And that's all it is, it's how are you gonna raise your probability of making a good decision? It doesn't have to come from you. It, you know, if somebody brings it up, just grab the best idea, the best thinking. That's right, that's right. And again, you gotta put ego aside to do that. So you get wiped out in 1982 because you did have an ego. You learned from that mistake. But how do you rebuild? I mean, you got nothing. You gotta borrow from your jazz you, musician dad. I mean, well, how but, do you rebuild? But you, you know what it is. Look at it. It is that the most wonderful things come from people who don't have of the things. They, they have that mix. You know, of determination. Okay, do they have a passion to pursue something? Do they do they learn how to deal with reality well, mm -hmm. so that they learn their lessons? And then, do they have the determination? That's the magic formula. There's if you have a lot of money or if you have a lot of success. Look at the most successful companies. The most successful history of most successful companies is they decline. The people who have the things I'm just referring to, they win. Right, mm -hmm. so those are the things you need. It doesn't matter if I, you, you, you crash, okay. So I don't know what I was at the time. Maybe I was 31, 32 or something. I had you know, the greater part of my life ahead of me and I'm learning. So it's that, you but know you, you don't need anything. To, how did you get people to trust you again to put money into your well, venture again? Uh, people, people, some people knew when I was watching, they had, you do a little bit at a time. And what happened is I, um, there were still people who trusted me, mm -hmm. particularly some began to be institutional investors who started to trust me. The thinking was good. They understood that I made that one big mistake, but I had a good track record all except for that one big mistake. And then, so they watched. You know, it's the one big mistake. Steve Jobs is one big mistake where he gets fired from Apple, mm -hmm, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and he loses Apple, okay? Right. Yeah, I could, you could list those. But people, some people would have trust. You build it and you do a better job, you know? Earn you it get, one at you, a time. There are, more, there are more second chances than two. You know, you get many <laughs> of chances in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, having studied part of your life before the interview, I think that one part that I, that I want the audience to understand, though, is that you do, you weren't just guessing. You built a 
you worked really hard at, at getting knowledge in those specific areas, whether it's commodities or, or wherever you started. So that that's why people had the faith to put money back in because it, it was apparent that you knew more than others I, in that I, field. I, I, yes, I had learned a lot and people would say that I knew a lot and that I was good and I made a really stupid mistake. Mm -hmm. But of course, what I knew then was then a fraction of what I learned and, and then most importantly, I knew how to deal with my not knowing. So there's another thing I would just try to emphasize. How you deal with not what you don't know mm -hmm. is more important than anything you know. Okay. Because there's more out there that you don't know than is ever in your head in terms of those types of yep. benefits. And so, and if you deal with your not knowing well, you'll also get to know more because you will take that in. So. I mean, it's just the key. You just, if you just do those three things that I'm telling you, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, have big dreams, go after them. Really embrace reality, including that you don't know that you can get it from anywhere. You don't even have to get it from your just yourself. So you can um, learn how to deal with reality effectively. Mm -hmm. And then go with a lot of determination. You can't help it, it'll work. Yeah. And and just don't don't leave out the determination part because you got to really know what your your field is, whatever the field happens to be. That's right. And so you reading have, Ray's book, you get a sense that I mean, you lived it, breathed it. You I mean, you own the, the those areas, and that's why people wind up having trust in you again. But let, let's talk more about Bridgewater because you do something some things that are really radically different at your company than other companies. Literally, it's called radical transparency. What what is that? Well, in one sentence, my Bridgewater is most importantly an idea meritocracy, so mm -hmm. where the best ideas win out, in which our goals are to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. They're equally important, mm -hmm. okay? In other words, be great at work and be great at the relationships part, because that's important. And to do that through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. So radical truthfulness um, means that we say what we think and we try to get past it. And radical transparency means that everybody can see it pretty much everything. So we tape things so that everybody can see anything that's going on so it's brought to the surface. So this, the way this idea of meritocracy works is you gotta do three things. Uh, first, uh, you have to put your honest thoughts on the table. Whatever you're thinking, put mm -hmm. them on the table, I put them on the table. That means if you think I'm not good at something, put it on the table, I'll do it, put it on the table and we'll look at it together. Second. That sounds pretty hard. So it's, it's not, it, you know what's, if you look at the second order consequences rather than the first order consequences, mm -hmm. um, it, what's harder is living with the consequences of not doing that. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, this first order, second order consequences thing. Let me explain. Yeah, life uh, life is one of those things where what they do is they trick you. Life is tricks you, because the first order consequences are usually the opposite of the second order consequences and what they mean for it, mm -hmm. like food. Okay, you want to eat the food that tastes good and, and uh, you know, and probably isn't good for you. Mm -hmm. And then, so the things that taste good have a tendency to not be as good for you, or the things that. So there's a lot of these tricks in life in terms of the second order consequences. Mm -hmm. So the knowing what's good for you and difficult. So it, it, 
like I think about this question as is it hard to be radically truthful? Well, let me just ask a question and this is like we do for ourselves. If we're gonna have a relationships, would you rather me tell you what I really think? Or would you rather me not tell you what I really think? Okay, okay let and me when you that. answer that question, here's, here's what's, let me just one more yeah. second. When you answer that question, you will intellectually say, I would rather you tell me so that I know and we could work it through. That's because you're part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, thoughtful, not emotional way, is going to want to do that. Your emotional part of your brain, the subliminal emotional part of your brain, is not going to want to do that. So there are like two U's in there. Okay, mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. are two you. I totally get it. And yeah. one of them wants to know and work it through, and the other one doesn't want to know, and that's where the problem is. Okay, so look, radical truthfulness, that's, you just described TYT. Okay, that's what we do on the Young Turks. So God bless, I get that part. But when you do it in the context of interpersonal relationships, including the ones at work, that's where most people think it is incredibly difficult. To say to someone, like it's easier to say to me, maybe easier to say to you because we we like to think, and we're I'm sure we're not completely right about that either. But that we have less of an ego. I have a big ego in other ways, no question about that. But I, but you can criticize me, and I and I and I don't, I'm not too worried about it. Okay, and I take that as positive for myself. But other people who are not used to it, if you have to tell them you're not good at this. So let that's me. Tough. So, so that's let, really so, tough. So right? let me ask you to just to carry it through cerebrally. Mm -hmm. So um, first question. Let's imagine we're having somebody sitting here and we're asking them a question. Mm -hmm. First question, Jake. Um, which is uh, more effective? Which is the better way to be? Which is the the better way to be? In other words, is it better to be able to speak that way and do that? Or is it better not to? Are you gonna have a better life if you do that? Or should should you do that, that speak openly and mm -hmm. work that way? Or should you not, A or B, which is it? Which well, is gonna be more effective? Well, it depends on what your goals are. Well, I'm saying, but because, what? Because if I my goal is to run a better company, I'm sure you're right. But if my goal is to not hurt their feelings? No, you but, know I'm, what I'm but I, no, but I think that when you deal with the dishonesty of um, not hurt their feelings, you're gonna be making judgments about people, okay? You're going, and those will be in your mind. And they may be right and they may be wrong. And I'm saying if I was the person at the other end here who's asking you what I wanna know, I would want to know, okay? Because then you could work that through. Because the misunderstanding and all of those judgments is gonna be a, a, a problem, a problem in efficiency and a problem in, in, in trust and so on. If we had a partnership, and you knew that I was going to be totally truthful with you, and you're gonna to be totally truthful with me, okay? Mm -hmm. And that partnership, by the way, can include personal relationships. If you know, okay, listen, there's not gonna be anything hidden and we're gonna do it, but we can work through that. That is the more effective. You, put, you stay to what the barrier is. The barrier is an emotional barrier. It's not a logical barrier. You would wanna be that way. So if you know that being that way is gonna make you more successful and you now have just an emotional barrier, maybe that'll prompt you to say, I better deal with that emotional barrier that is standing in my way of being as effective as I could be. Mm -hmm. And you think that, that in your personal life, so for, if for in terms of business and certainly in terms of the stock market and finance, 
I think it's very easy to see the, the benefits of that. It's in my because, personal because business, it's in my personal relationships too. That's what I wanna oh, ask okay. you about. You know, because an idea meritocracy is super important if you're picking stocks. You know, <laughs> and you've gotta get it right and you've gotta get the best information, etc. But in your personal life, it, don't people get you know, First of all, I just, I just, I just not understand the way that you're handling. It. You see what I'm saying? I, I, of course, I, I know what the dilemma is, and I see it. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. Um, um, and, and, and let me be clear: um, it's not total transparency about everything. I don't go out of my way to tell somebody their bald spot is growing or anything <laughs> like this, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm, it's not that kind of thing. You don't just walk up and uh, say, "Oh, your wife is ugly." You yeah, don't say that, right? right? right. No, okay, okay. So <laughs> what I'm, but what I'm talking about is in the relationships of the people that I have. Uh, the, um, I don't even think they know that they can trust in truth. They know that what I'm saying is there. They know that we can deal with it together in terms of looking at it. They know that when I'm making a judgment, I also am approaching it that I don't know that I'm right about that judgment. And that we can, and then they can hear it and we can have the back and forth and so on. That has allowed us to get through to create a better relationship. So I'm having much better relationships. It may not be the at that moment, there might be a discomfort that we have to work ourselves through. But when you have trust in that kind of, Honesty in that relationship. Man, let me tell you, you be a partner of mine in any way in life or in business, and you're not that way, it's not gonna work, mm -hmm. okay? Because if I doubt your truth, so it improves efficiency because it gets it all on the table, okay? And don't be such a wimp about talking about it, okay? <laughs> in other words, yeah, oh, it's uncomfortable, oh, it's uncomfortable. Right. Let's get past that uncomfort and try to deal with what we're really thinking to get better. And it builds that trust and builds better relationships. So we'll put the link to the TED Talk and the book in the description box and wherever you watch this video. but. Uh, just I say I, that because Ray lived it. It's it's not just that you do it to others and you're the boss. That's easy or easier. Maybe actually it's harder for me. But um, but they they get to do it to you. And they I saw the emails where they're like Ray, you were terrible in that meeting. What was wrong with you? <laughs> right, because first of all, I, I needed the feedback. I was right. I wasn't good in the meeting. And then could you imagine what it would be like? The guy thinks, man, he really stank in that meeting, mm -hmm. and he can't talk up. So he's gotta bottle it up and he's walking around with that thing on him, okay? Now imagine what the difference in the relationship is when the guy can just say, hey, you were really lousy in the meeting, what do you think? And I'd say, and you're, you know, you're right, I was lousy in the meeting. We both got better for that and we both have a better relationship than if he's walking around with that bottled up. Okay, super fair, I get it. So uh, one more thing, meditation. So you, you do a lot of that, you've given to charities, uh, uh, David Lynch uh, mm -hmm. Foundation, I think, on meditation. How does that help? What, you know, Russell Simmons has talked to me about it, but I still don't quite get it. What is it that you do in meditation and, and, and is it a big part of your success? Is it a big? Part? Uh, it's a big. I think it's a big part, uh -huh. uh, um, and a lot of people's success. So let me describe why it is and how it works. First of all, there's nothing um, religious or um, uh, you know Eastern or whatever. It's not. It's, it's a very practical thing. Mm -hmm. The way it works is um, you. You have a mantra, it's called, which is a sound or like a word that doesn't have any meaning that you repeat over and over again. And by in your mind, mm -hmm. you sit there quietly and you do that. And when you repeat that, 
it takes you out of your thoughts because you can't just sit there and not think. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts will race around and you can't get rid of them. And so by repeating this, it diverts your attention from those thoughts to this sound. Mm -hmm. And then the sound disappears. And then you sort of are in this sort of subconscious state where you've cleaned your mind of the thoughts and so on. And it brings you two things, this practice. First of all, it helps you navigate your thoughts better because mm -hmm. you can control your thoughts rather than the thoughts controlling you. And then by being able to do that, you develop an equanimity, in other words, a centeredness, a, an ability to see things in a calmer way so that you don't get emotionally hijacked. And that's tremendously beneficial. It's a little bit like in the ninja movies, you know, the ninja, and then they, and, and it looks like it's slow to the ninja. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's, that's almost what life comes at as it's coming at you, whatever it is. It's kind of like slow it up and you can deal with it in that sort of way. And it also brings you into your subconscious mind where the subconscious mind is where creativity comes from. In other words, you don't muscle creativity. It's not like I'm gonna sit there and work hard at being creative. <laughs> it is like you go take a hot shower mm -hmm. and this idea pops into your head because it's coming from the subconscious mind. And so it helps to create, create get the creativity. So I, f I found it very helpful. So the and, one part and that everybody I I've given it to, it's the best gift I can give anyone because they'll carry it around for life and they, and they gives them those things. And for um, everyone that I've given to and who's done it for on, um, enough time, uh, it might take a few months to get used to it, nobody's uh, stopped it. And so if you look at the people who do it, um, it you know, uh, yeah, you say, for example, Russell Simmons and you, uh, Oprah Winfrey and- um, I, I think Jobs did it too. Uh, yeah, Jobs did it. I mean, it, it just it is, Look into it. You're, how, how, do you do it every day and how long? Most days. Yeah. Um, uh, 20 minutes, the, uh, I'm not 100% uh, uh, faithful in it. I do it probably, uh, but it's supposed to be done 20 minutes uh, in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, usually before uh, breakfast and before dinner. Mm -hmm. I do, do that probably a third of the days. Mm -hmm. I'll probably do it once. A, um, a day for another third of the days, and I'll probably miss it a third of the days. That's what I do. But I've done it for um, since 1969, so wow. that was a you know I guess whatever that is, what, 48 what? years, yeah. and it's been uh, well. It's obviously worked. So what, one last thing about that: the part I never understand is once you get to the you know you've cleared your mind, you're repeating the mantra over and over again. Okay, after you've cleared your mind, are you allowed to think about things? Right? Are you? Is that the moment of creativity? Can you concentrate on things well, what, one the, at a time? The way or is the, the mind supposed to be clear for the whole twenty minutes? Just repeat. It's, it's clear, and that and, and the funny thing about the experience is, as you as, as you're meditating and you're sort of going into that calm, open-minded state that's subconscious, um, the most terrific ideas bubble up, and it's tough because. Um, you want to think about those things. You don't want to lose them. It's like a dream. You don't want to lose what that dream, but you will lose that dream if you don't go deeper. So the idea is, okay, no, just put it away. Just put those great ideas that are coming at you, put them away and keep doing it. And then when you do that after a while, and then you come out of the meditation, you know, you carry things with you and that's how it works. All right, great. Listen, guys, there's over 200 principles. So you uh, here's the book, 
And uh, and I think that, you know, look, a lot of times we talk about politics on the show, but this cuts across all lines. The reason there's 200 of these, I should make clear, is because these are not like highfalutin principles, just it's like if you encounter a certain type of thing, you need a principle for that thing. And so literally there are a couple of hundred things that I encountered and I wrote a principle for dealing with that thing. And that's why it's kind of a recipe book. And they could have their own principles. As they this is the most important thing I start out off with. Um, don't follow, think for yourself, have your own principles. But be very open-minded, get them from wherever they're good and, you, uh, and, and operate by principles. But if you can think in principle terms, the world will become a lot easier and, more, and you'll be more effective. Because rather than a blizzard of things, you'll start to see, ah, that's another one of those. Patterns. Right? right. It's that one. Oh, when dealing with that one, I deal this way. And I would deal with that one, and life becomes simpler and more effective. Ray Dalio, thank you for joining us on the Young Turks. Thank you really, for really me. appreciate it. Appreciate it. it.